Possible Foster Podcast. This is episode number 10, season 2. And as it turns out, I think this is going to be the wrap-up episode for the season. I noticed that uh, last season went 10 episodes, and so 10 feels like a good number. Now, to be clear, there's a few extra ones here because I did split a few up, had a nice little introduction at the beginning. Nevertheless, we're calling this 10, so it seems like it's a good time to wrap up. Also, some stuff in my own life is shifting. I'm stepping into some studying. I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to finish up my master's and try to knock out a doctoral thing. So that's going to take up some of my time. Not that I have a ton of time anyhow between the church and Haiti and book writing. And then recently I've been writing music again, which is hilarious how much time that's taken. But it's been a lot of fun. But Nevertheless, this seems like a good time. To wrap up this particular season of the podcast, it doesn't mean we won't do more in the future, but it's just the way it is for now. So thank you for playing a part in all of this, and I get to hear from some of you from time to time, and it means the world to me um, because it helps me know that I'm influencing someone. But as I've said before, in the end, probably the truth is most all of the stuff I do, it's for me anyhow because I'm trying to work it out in my own mind. So I think I have some good thoughts for you to wrap up for today. And so let's get into that. I don't know if you're familiar with George Orwell's classic, 1984. It's that dystopian novel that was written in the late 1940s, which was amazing. Orwell was incredibly prescient as he wrote that story. But even if you haven't read it, you're probably aware of terms and concepts that were birthed out of that book. So I hadn't read the book in a long time, and actually probably since the year 1984, because I have a vague memory, which most of my memories of high school are quite vague. I have a vague memory of a teacher assigning us that book to read in 84, which makes sense. But during my youngest uh, senior year of high school, which was last year, he was doing a paper on the book. So it was laying around the house, and I I picked it up, and I read through it again. Now, I'm not a literary critic, but let me tell you the most moving part of the story for me without giving the whole book away in case you want to read it. So it's a story set against the backdrop of a totalitarian state that rules its people by fear and constant surveillance and suspicion, even to the point of developing a secret group of people called uh, the Thought Police, And as the term implies, this is a group that figures out ways to detect what others are thinking. And if what you're thinking has not been approved by the government, then of course you'll be punished. As you can imagine, everyone is walking on eggshells. So the main character, his name is Winston. And he, like everyone else, understands how bad things could get for him if some of his thoughts gets out, because some of the things that he thinks uh, isn't approved by the totalitarian regime. And so the first part of the book is spent detailing the lengths he goes to stay out of the sight of what's called Big Brother, because Big Brother is constantly watching. At some point, he starts having this feeling, it's a stronger than normal feeling, that he's being watched. And so the plot thickens and the tension builds. And then he discovers that it's true. Someone is watching him specifically. And it turns out to be this lady by the name of Julia. He spots her in a handful of different places throughout his life over a certain period of time. And he knows he's done for. 
because he knows she's with the thought police and he's been found out. So one day in the middle of a busy market area, unbeknownst to him, Julia walks close by. In the middle of the crowd of people, she gently pushes a slip of paper into his pocket. You know, they rub up against each other and, and he feels it. He recognizes in the moment what's happening, sees that it's her as she walks away, and it takes his breath away. He's nervous because he now feels like he's been found out. He, of course, he doesn't open it immediately because he doesn't want to arouse suspicion. So he waits. He carries around, carries it around with him in his pocket all day. And then when he gets to work, he casually tosses it onto a pile, you know, to make it appear as if he's got nothing interesting on him. So even though he's not reading the letter, the letter is very much the thing that's on the top of his mind. And so the tension builds throughout the day. It's really strong and intelligent writing. And finally, he pulls it out when he's sure that no one else is watching. And he unfolds the letter and he reads it carefully. And the note says, I love you. It, of course, takes Winston completely off guard because he thought the note was going to tell him that he's been found out, that he's going to be destroyed. So it completely takes him off guard and it captivates him so much that really the rest of the story follows the trail of that one thought. I love you. When I read that again last year, I remember slowly putting the book down. And I thought, I think this is the way it is with us and God. We're born into a religious system that tells us we're sinners, that we're going to be punished if we don't repent, that God is holy and wrathful and perfect and etc., etc. And he's watching us. We go through life thinking that he's out to get us, and we're worried. We feel like we're being watched. We glance behind us as we go around corners. We search for people's eyes in crowded marketplaces. We have anxieties and deep-seated fears, but we keep them to ourselves because of our guilt and our shame. We'll kneel at altars and public places to give witness to the fact that we believe what the right thing to believe is in. And we do this in front of religious authorities, and we do this with religious authorities. Because why? Well, principally because we want to escape the punishment that will come our way if we don't believe in the right kinds of things and pray the right kinds of things. And even if we didn't grow up in a religious system, there are other types of ideologies that run our culture we're all exposed to. And I think it's safe to say it's all fear-based. you got to consume, because consumerism is what defines you. You have to achieve, because that's how you get ahead in life. You have to win, because that's the path to control, on and on and on. Like, if you can, if you can consume and achieve and win, you can control and you can keep the fears at bay. So I don't really think it matters whether we grow up religious fundamentalist or American consumer fundamentalist. It all winds up being the same thing. And then one day, out of the blue, like we don't even see it coming, we have some encounter with someone or some idea or some moment, and someone puts the proverbial slip of paper in our pocket. It catches us off guard. We're nervous about it. So we don't open it up right away, but later by ourselves, when no one's looking, we pull it out. And we expect, we, we expect we're going to be found out. That, oh yeah, this is going to be the thing, and now we're, now we're in trouble. That all of our shame has been warranted. And we're nervous about it. But we can't help ourselves. We have to know what the judgment is. So we pull the letter out, we carefully unfold it, and then we're shocked to find 
It's actually the opposite news. God's not angry at us. God's not angry, period. God loves us because God is love. And it takes us off guard. It captivates our heart so much that the story of our life forever follows the trail of that one thought. God loves me. What might it mean that God loves us? Not in the watered-down sense of the word love, but in the most robust, powerful, self-giving away sense of the word. What might it mean? Among other things, it might mean that we don't have to live in the fear and in the shame and in the anxiety of our problems. Because if God, the most important thing in all the world, loves us, He's with us there in the midst of it. And so instead of looking for protection and running away, we can stand tall and walk into the deepest issues of who we are. I find this helpful because what I'm finding in life, first of all, there is no protection from our problems. There really isn't. It's just a part of the fabric of our lives. How about COVID-19? I mean, that's a virus that illustrates how true this is. The reality is there's stuff around us all the time we cannot control. Or hurricanes, or tornadoes, or random events, or car crashes. And yes, Jesus calmed the storm in the gospel stories, but there were other storms that came after that. And yes, Jesus raised the dead, but that didn't mean that people didn't die later. In other words, Jesus calmed storms inside the bigger storm of life, and Jesus raised the dead inside the bigger story of death that's going on around us all of the time. And yet, according to the resurrection, death is going on inside the bigger story of life. But there's no protection from our problems, from the chaos, from storms, or from death. Also, To insulate from the problem means insulating from solutions. To insulate from the problem is to insulate from the solution. The reality is the solution is found in the midst of the problem. For example, do you remember the story where the blind man was healed and how upset the religious leaders were? When they found him, they scolded him. You know, they're asking him all these questions. They're scrutinizing him. They're upset. They think he's the problem. Actually, he's a testimony to the answer. Another example might be Saul persecuting the Christians. He thinks they're the problem. Actually, they have the answer to his problems. Another way of thinking about all of this is to consider the COVID-19 virus. And right now we have some of our smartest people in the world going into the heart of the virus, studying the RNA to figure out an antivirus. So we're going into the virus to map it because the solution is in the midst of the problem. Ultimately, Jesus goes into death. He finds the solution in the midst of the problem. So there's no protection from our problems. And to insulate ourselves from the problems would be to insulate ourselves from the solution anyhow. 
So the idea is Jesus gives us the hope and the strength and the courage to walk into the deepest parts of who we are. It reminds me of a Time Magazine interview with the Rabbi Harold Kushner, if that's how you pronounce his name. But they were talking about prayer and they were referencing a study where people had been prayed for who had been sick. And in the end, they didn't find any conclusive evidence that praying had helped anyone become healthy. And so the rabbi says something to the effect, and I just posted this, I can't remember exactly, but he says, it's not God's job to make sick people healthy. That's the job of the doctor. It's God's job to make sick people brave. I really like that. And I think that that's true. Now, that doesn't mean health doesn't come on the other side of being brave, which actually I think it does. But bravery comes first, the courageousness to step into the heart of our deepest issues, knowing that God is with us. I talk about these kind of things because I think religious America, evangelical Christian religious America to be more specific, kind of gets things out of whack sometimes. I mean, and I get things out of whack sometimes too, but it's frustrating because I don't think they have taught us very much about our desires and who we are and who God is. And so we constantly are getting things kind of turned around. I don't know if you're familiar with a guy by the name of Jacques Lacan. He was a um, French philosopher from a couple hundred years ago. And I don't know a ton about him, just enough to be slightly dangerous. I hope to study more. But he's famous for this idea of the object of desire versus object cause of desire. And I can't remember if I've talked about it on the podcast, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself. But I find this to be very powerful and very applicable to where many of us are at in this season of life. Uh, in terms of deconstructing and reconstructing Christianity. But the idea between object of desire and object cause of desire is to recognize that we're never really sure what exactly is motivating us. And sometimes it's the hindrances that are, th that are the things that are motivating us as much as the thing that we want to get to. For example, I don't know if you know of anyone who's bought a new iPhone over the years, maybe even stood in line, you know, participated in all the hype. And then now, years later, they no longer have the phone, and yet they still have the box. I think that has been true of me at times in my life. I have the box longer than the actual phone. Like, what is that about? Like, we enjoy the, the, the thing that the phone came in lasts longer than the phone itself. Ostensibly, we went for the phone, but we're left with the box. There's something to be said about that. Um, object of desire might have been the phone, or, or the object cause of desire might have been the phone, but the actual object of desire might have been having the prestige of owning you know, that box for years to come. Another way of looking at it might be the guy who wants to buy a new car, and so he studies you know, different car manufacturers and types, and he reads consumers' reports, consumer reports, and then he begins to talk with the dealership, which is always a fun thing, by the way. You know, and they begin to negotiate a price. 
He test drives. He takes the car back. He goes home. He thinks about it some more. He talks to some friends. On and on and on. And then one day, he finally pulls the trigger and he buys the car. And a week or two later, he's not happy. And we find the guy sitting down, flipping through the newspaper or through ads online about other cars. So what's going on? Well, for this for this guy, it really wasn't the car that he was interested in buying. That's not the thing that fulfilled him. The thing that was fulfilling to him was the struggle of working through all of the stuff in order to find the best deal. He's not really happy. You know, the the desire really wasn't the car. That's not the thing that made him happy. The thing that made him happy was the struggle of the whole thing. Uh, Peter Rollins will talk about how this is emblematic. That, like we see all of this, the, sim- the symbolism of all of this in the Hebrew story of the garden. So Adam and Eve thought the prohibition of fruit was an obstacle to their happiness. And it turns out that the prohibition generated desire itself. And I, I think there's truth in the middle of all of this. It requires us, of course, to read that story a little bit differently, to have an understanding of who we are at a little bit deeper level than we've had in the past. But then I think about the way, at least in my experience, the American evangelical, the American evangelical way of presenting the gospel of Jesus to me. And basically, the evangelical system said, well, you're not happy because, you know, the iPhone really didn't deliver and the car really didn't deliver. You know, and you can replace those things with any number of different objects. And so the gospel story has been presented as, well, of course you're not happy because those things won't last. What you really need is Jesus, and Jesus will last. But in a way, it's the same packaging. In the way, it's the same thing. It's like, no, you have this God-shaped hole inside of you. Only Jesus can fill. Here, get Jesus, stick him into that spot, and then you'll be happy. Which is basically the same message as, you know, that the advertisers and the marketers and that all the other consumers out there are giving us. Use Jesus as a product to help you, whatever, fill in the blank, be saved, be holy, get to heaven. I think all of it's probably synonymous generally with this idea of becoming happy. But I don't think it really works that way. If it did, Jesus just becomes another token to put into the slot of our happiness vending machine. But that that doesn't work. What really works, and I think Peter Rollins says this as well as anyone I've heard say this, is that Jesus becomes a hammer that breaks the entire vending machine outlook in the first place. Just rips apart the way that we've defined meaning in our life. Turns everything upside down. Because love does that. Love turns everything upside down. So what Jesus really did was to bring a hammer to the whole system. And I love that word because just recently... I came across a sentence in the book of Jeremiah that I don't think I've ever read before, certainly never noticed before, when Jeremiah says, My word is like fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that shatters the rock. So God's word isn't just the text. In the end, it's the capital L, capital W, living word, that is Jesus, the Christ. And God's fire? Well, God's fire is another way of talking about God's love. Song of Songs says, Love burns like fire, the brightest kind of flame. And so love, excuse me, life, this thing isn't about punishment and fear and anxiety and shame and condemnation and getting it right because big brother slash God is watching you and if you don't, you're going to be punished. No, man, life's about gratitude. 
and about a relationship with someone, that is God, via the way of Jesus, which is the way of humility and respect for everyone and everything. And ultimately, it's about love. Love's the fire that burns everything else away. It is the brightest kind of flame. God cares about all of us. In spite of what you might be reading in the media or in your own social media, God cares about all of us. God cares about the black and the white, the policemen and the people from the hood, the educated and the uneducated, the protesters and the non-protesters, the straight and the gay, the young and the old, I mean, on and on, COVID and non-COVID, people wearing masks, people not wearing masks, the celebrity, the non-celebrity. God loves. He is love. It's not a love built upon death. It's a, it's a love that creatively transforms death into something beautiful. John Caputo said, beyond our desire for God is God's desire for us. Beyond our desire for God is God's desire for us. Maybe another way of saying that is to say, beyond our problems lies God's problems. And he does have a problem. It's the fact that his relentless affection for us motivates him to give himself, herself, itself away to us which is to say it puts him in the way of violence. <laughs> That's a problem for God. He, over, he overcomes his problem by giving himself away. Where do we take all of this? Where do we go from here? What... What's the application from object of desire, object cause of desire? I suppose there are a handful of different ways to interpret this thought. And forgive me for those of you who know more about Lacanian philosophy than I do. I may be butchering it. But I think one thing I want to tell, let's say, first of all, let's talk to the person who has never really taken Christianity seriously or who took it seriously but under an old, restrained, fundamental context that you've kind of thrown off and now you haven't dealt with it, you haven't thought it in, about it in a serious way for a long time. So what I would want to do with you is to invite you to consider the way of Jesus, either for the first time or again in a very serious way, because the way of Jesus will help you find meaning in the struggle. It's what I believe. So in other words rather than the typical Christian Americanized thing of me saying to you, hey, you need to get Jesus into your heart so he'll fill that God space, that God-sized hole in your heart, and in that way you can be, quote-unquote, happy or get whatever you're supposed to get. I'm, I'm not going down that path at all. I'm less interested about the God-sized hole in your heart, and I'm more interested about the you-sized hole in God's heart. And I think it might be more appropriate to think of it that way, rather than trying to get God into you, to open you up to the way of love, to the way of Jesus. Again, not so that you can, not so that your struggle is over and now you can finally have meaning, but rather so that you can find meaning in the middle of your struggle. Because to be a human means to live in the middle of the tohu vohu, 
the things that we've talked about throughout this podcast season. That is the texture, the life, the anti-life, the chaos and the potential, the promise and the vulnerability of what it means to be human. I don't think we ever get over that. I think we are, from the moment we're born till the day we die, I think we are vulnerable and we feel that deeply. And so we're constantly trying to create formulaic ways, economic ways, legal ways to get ourselves right with God. But it's an exercise in meaninglessness because we don't need to do that. We're already right with God. God loves us. So I'm not trying to invite you to invite God into your life in such a way that might get you right and get you over the struggle and now you've found meaning. But rather starting from the premise that you're already right with God. God loves you. And that the way of Jesus will provide meaning for you as you struggle through life. And I hope you can see the difference in those two approaches. And it's your choice. It's, uh, you know, I think a really valid question would be to ask, why do people like me even bring that up? I don't bring it up because I'm afraid that you're going to go to hell and burn forever. I don't think that that's healthy or an accurate way to look at it at all. I think I bring it up because it seems, as I'm trying to look deep into the subterranean levels of my heart right now, it seems like it's possible that I may care about humanity. I may care about people like you. And I may want to give you a valid way to find meaning in the middle of your struggle. And I think the way of Jesus is a valid way. It could also be that I'm somewhat self... This could all be self-serving too. Because if I get you to think along these ways and you agree with me, it may reinforce to me at some level that I'm doing the right thing. So, you know, I'm I'm self-analyzing my own motives right now, which is basically impossible to do. But I could be confused in all that. I could also be thinking in terms of the generation to come after us, because I do think at some level I'm convinced that the only hope for our world, for the generations to come, is the hope of living by way of the way of Jesus. I believe he's the way, truth, and the life. I think it makes sense from an ecological standpoint, but also our relationships, the way we interact one with another personally, our geopolitical relationships. I think what I want to think is that in the end, that the way of Jesus is the only thing that introduces you and our whole world to an economy of grace rather than an economy of power. And I think that the kingdom of God, which is love, traffics in grace. I don't think it traffics in transactional power, economic power, legal power, formulaic power. I think it traffics in relational grace and hospitality in the ability to interact and to listen and to be patient and to love one another. So, yeah, I, I think that what I want to think is that it is the hope for you personally and it's the hope for me and it's the hope for the generations to come and it's the hope for the world. And if you're someone who is a part of a religious community that keeps communicating to you something negative, something heavy, something sacrificial driven, if you're if you're carrying that kind of baggage and you and maybe it's not even your religious community, maybe it's just your past, maybe it's the voices inside of your own head. Maybe it's you know the accusational satanic systems of our world. Maybe you are someone who, like Winston in the story, is looking around the corner, who's 
trying to find people's eyes out in a crowded public square. Maybe you have anxiety and shame and guilt. And maybe you've just been waiting for the judgment from God to pronounce that you are, in fact, guilty. For somebody like you, I really want, I would really want you to at least to hear someone at some point say that God has slipped a little paper note inside of your coat and he's waiting for you to open it up at just the right moment when you have the strength and the courage to read it. And all that the note says is that he loves you. He loves you. So whatever you're going through is not the end. With love, endings are actually just new beginnings. God loves you. And love never gives up. Thanks, everyone. Stay in touch. Peace.